This is a new source 1 Mikeyana weather alert. Dot winter weather advisory in effect from 6 a.m. east forward slash 5 m cst forward slash Monday to 1 p.m. east forward slash noon cst forward slash Tuesday, asterisk what, snow expected. Total snow accumulations of 4 to 8 inches with localized higher amounts where lake banding persists. Asterisk where, in Indiana, La Porte and St. Joseph counties. In Michigan, Berrien County. Asterisk when, from 6 a.m. east forward slash 5 m cst forward slash Monday to 1 p.m. east forward slash noon cst forward slash Tuesday. Asterisk impacts, travel could be very difficult at times. The hazardous conditions will impact the morning and evening commutes. Precautionary forward slash preparedness actions. Slow down and use caution while traveling. Winter weather advisory in effect from 6 a.m. east forward slash 5 m cst forward slash to 4 p.m. east forward slash 3 p.m. cst forward slash Monday, asterisk what, snow expected. Total snow accumulations of 2 to 4 inches. Asterisk where, portions of northern Indiana and southwest Michigan. Asterisk when. From 6 a.m. east forward slash 5 m cst forward slash to 4 p.m. east forward slash 3 p.m. cst forward slash Monday. Asterisk impacts, plan on slippery road conditions. The hazardous conditions will impact the morning commute. Precautionary forward slash preparedness actions. Slow down and use caution while traveling. News Nation this hour, I'm Gabe Salgado. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is ruling out advanced sanctions against Russia. The purpose of those sanctions is to deter uh, Russian aggression. Uh, and so if they're, uh, if they're triggered now, you lose the deterrent effect. Appearing on CNN's State of the Union, Blinken said that while no breakthroughs have been achieved in talks so far, he hopes Moscow chooses the path of diplomacy. He added the choice is up to Putin and the U.S. is prepared. But Texas Representative Michael McCall is blasting President Biden's handling of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. This president has made so many concessions with nothing in return. That's why Putin smells weakness. Appearing on CBS Face the Nation, the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee noted the waiving of sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in Europe as one of Biden's many concessions to Moscow. McCall also strongly disagreed with Secretary Blinken's strategy of waiting to impose sanctions as a means of deterrence. Police in Milwaukee, Wisconsin found five people dead in a home Sunday afternoon. The bodies of the four men and one woman were discovered around 4 p.m. Central Time. Local police say it appears they were all murdered. An autopsy will be conducted today. The discovery was made when police conducted a welfare check at the request of concerned neighbors. Dr. Anthony Fauci says it looks like the peak of Omicron cases will happen by mid-February. But Fauci told ABC's This Week that the COVID-19 virus has, quote, surprised us in the past and says we may not be done with booster shots. We may need to boost again. That's entirely conceivable. Fauci said before a decision is made about another booster, they are still determining the durability of the booster shot that has already been given to people. And an IRS worker shortage could make filing this season more taxing. AP correspondent Jennifer King reports. Tax season starts Monday, and an already backlogged Internal Revenue Service is saying delays are to be expected. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki admitted Friday that the IRS is overloaded. Customer service uh, that people are receiving is not what the American public deserves. In 2020, the agency processed more than 240 million returns and received over 59 million calls and visits. Between added work from pandemic benefits and a longstanding shortfall of employees, the agency's issues could be a problem for Americans who depend on their refund or have questions about deductions. I'm Jennifer King. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at NewsNationNow.com and on the News Nation Now app. I'm Gabe Salgado. Detailed forecast today.
Listen to the latest winter weather advisory bulletin. Grass monkey cold midweek. Snow, mainly before 3 p.m., high near 28. South wind 10 to 15 miles per hour becoming west in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 20 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 90%. Total daytime snow accumulation of 2 to 4 inches possible. Tonight. Snow showers likely. Cloudy, with the low around 14. Northwest wind 5 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 70%. New snow accumulation of 1 to 2 inches possible. Tuesday. A 40% chance of snow showers, mainly before 1 p.m., mostly cloudy and cold, with a high near 17. West wind 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tuesday night. A 40% chance of snow showers, mostly cloudy, with the low around 1. Wind chill values as low as minus 10. West wind around 10 miles per hour. Wednesday. A 20% chance of snow showers before 1 p.m., mostly sunny and cold, with a high near 11. Southwest wind around 10 miles per hour. Wednesday night. Partly cloudy, with the low around 1. Thursday. A 30% chance of snow after 1 p.m., mostly cloudy, with a high near 28. Thursday night. A 40% chance of snow. Mostly cloudy, with a low around 9. Friday. A 20% chance of snow. Partly sunny and cold, with a high near 20. From the Black Information Network. This is the BIN Daily Update. I'm Vanessa Tyler. And I'm Mike Stevens on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. The other three Minnesota cops who basically stood by as Derek Chauvin kneeled the life out of George Floyd must answer. This is the federal trial for ex-Minneapolis cops Jay King, who is black, Thomas Lane, who is white, and Tutau, who is of Asian descent. As the Black Information Network's Nicole Deal tells us, a mostly white jury is ready to begin hearing testimony. In the case. It only took one day to seat a jury who will decide the fate of the three former officers. Prosecutors will argue they violated George Floyd's civil rights during his arrest in 2020 by not intervening or providing medical help. A fourth ex-cop is the one seen on video holding Floyd down until he stopped breathing. Derek Chauvin pleaded guilty last month to federal charges and is serving over two decades in a state prison. The other three will face state charges in June. I'm Nicole Deal on the Black Information Network. A black man is suing because he says Henderson, Arizona cops got it so wrong. He was arrested back in 2020 for an outstanding warrant. Problem is, the name was right, but the face was wrong. The 25-year-old black man spent six days in jail when cops were really looking for a 49-year-old white man with the same name. There is a cost of being black, so says Andre Perry. He is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Brookings Institution. He calculates that cost in everything, from the way black homes are devalued, which connects to underfunded schools, to how casually black lives are ended by violence. Perry put all his research in a book titled Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Every black Mississippi lawmaker walked out while their white colleagues took a vote to ban critical race theory in schools. CRT 
teaches the impact of racism in society. But reports are the white lawmakers twisted the definition to mean teaching white students they are inferior to black students. The bill's author, Republican Michael McClendon, admits critical race theory is not being taught in Mississippi, raising questions about the necessity of the bill. Black lawmaker Derek Simmons says he and his colleagues feel the bill is not even deserving of their votes. The American people are thinking less and less of lawmakers. 18 percent. That's what Congress's approval rating stands at, according to a new Gallup poll. It's the lowest mark in more than a year. Just last spring, 36 percent approved of the job Congress was doing. That poll was taken just after President Biden signed a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package into law. It would be historic if a black person owned an NFL team. It's never happened, but it could if the Denver Broncos hit the open market and black billionaire investor Robert F. Smith, who is reportedly interested, makes the winning bid. Forbes put Smith's net worth at $6.7 billion, and the team could go for sale at $4 billion. The cost to history? Priceless. I'm Vanessa Tyler with Mike Stevens on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. So how does therapy work? Therapy with Sondermind is personalized, so you can turn your... Everyone thinks I'm weird. Into... Maybe not everyone thinks I'm weird. Into... Maybe no one is even thinking about me. Into... Everyone's thinking about themselves. For whatever is on your mind, find personalized therapy that works for you with Sondermind. How therapy works. I'm Esther Dillard. And I'm Doug Davis on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. In the next few years, expect to see more black folks in the U.S., and many of them will be immigrants. Good Morning America reports about 4.6 million black people are in the U.S., and roughly 1 out of 10 are immigrants. A study with the Pew Research Center says that figure could more than double to 9.5 million people by 2060. The study also says the cities with the most black immigrants are New York with 900,000 and Florida with 800,000. The sister of a black federal police officer claimed her brother would likely be alive if it weren't for Facebook, so she filed a lawsuit. The Black Information Network's Julius White has the details. Federal police officer Pat Underwood was gunned down while guarding a federal courthouse in Oakland, California in 2020. Investigators say anti-government extremists Stephen Carrillo and Robert Justice were the gunmen who carried out the attack. Investigators say that both had only met each other online using Facebook to coordinate. Underwood's sister has filed a lawsuit against Meta, Facebook's parent company, claiming the social media platform is responsible for her brother's death. For the Black Information Network, I'm Julius White. American style is individualism. It's, it's everything is important. It's not one style. That's fashion icon Andre Leontale explaining style to CNN in 2019. The Daily Mail is reporting Talley's final days were spent as a recluse, secluded in an 11-room colonial White House in White Plains, New York. The media outlet reported the African-American trailblazer rarely answered his door, cautious of the coronavirus. A longtime friend told the paper Tally died of COVID complications and had underlying health issues related to his weight. Before the pandemic, Tally's weight was at more than 300 pounds. For more on these stories and international, national, state and local news affecting the black community, listen to the Black Information Network on the iHeartRadio app. Or log on to BINnews.com. 
I'm Esther Dillard, along with Doug Davis, on your home for 24-7 News, the Black Information Network. Now here's Morgan Wood with the Healthy Minute. Adults 65 and older who aren't vaccinated are nearly 50 times more likely to be hospitalized. That's according to new data from the CDC, showing hospitalization rates based on vaccination status. The CDC collected the data between November and December when most cases were likely caused by the Delta variant. The release of the report comes as officials continue to urge everyone to get a booster shot to fight the surge of cases caused by the Omicron variant. And a new study out recently adds more evidence to show there is no connection between COVID-19 vaccinations and infertility. The study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology said that couples being researched had slightly lower chances of conception if the male partner had a COVID-19 infection in the past two months. The NIH says more research is needed to determine what might be driving the findings, but that fever is known to reduce sperm count, and that's a known side effect of COVID-19. That's your Healthy Minutes. I'm Morgan Wood on the Black Information Network. This episode is brought to you by Found. Let's be real. Weight loss isn't just diet and exercise. It's also your biology, lifestyle, and environment. Found helps put all these factors into a weight care plan that centers your needs. Their doctors prescribe the right medication, and their coaches help you eat, move, sleep, de-stress, and work toward your weight loss goals. Start today by taking a simple quiz at joinfound.com slash Spotify and find your personalized weight care plan. Your money on the Black Information Network. General Motors is announcing plans to invest $154 million in a New York factory to build electric vehicle components. The Lockport Components plant will make the power plant for the upcoming all-electric vehicles that are scheduled to be on the road in 2025. GM's Ultium platform is its own system that will be put in future EVs and trucks. The investment will also create approximately 230 new jobs. President Biden is addressing the ongoing semiconductor chip shortage. It's linked to supply chain problems during the ongoing COVID pandemic. Everything from cars to dishwashers are delayed getting to showrooms and customers, just as demand for them is up because the economy is growing. Speaking at the White House, Biden pushed plans to significantly boost chip manufacturing in the U.S. He announced plans for a $20 billion investment in a new manufacturing plant in Ohio. Semiconductors are small computer chips that power virtually every Everything in our lives, your phone, your car, your refrigerator, your washing machine, hospital equipment, the Internet, the electric grid, and so much more. Money news at 24 and 54 minutes past each hour. I'm Julius White on the Black Information Network. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit AdoptUSKids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. Download the BIN Daily Update every morning on the iHeartRadio app. Oh, criminy. I'm sorry, but I don't think uh, under these conditions I can work. It's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey. (laughs) Oh, freeze the balls off a brass monkey. 
Well, I guess I must work because this is a good one. You know, uh, people know that that means it's very cold, yet it's not inappropriate. Let's take a look at the origin. Some references say that the brass triangles that supported stacks of iron cannonballs on sailing ships were called monkeys and that in cold weather the metal contracted causing the balls to fall off. I know you expected something naughty but not from your professor dear children. <laughs> I'm Professor Goodenwell and you've been watching Famous Phrases. Bye bye. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Ollie Barrett. The U.S. State Department is ordering family members of diplomats serving in the U.S. Embassy in Kiev to leave the country. It's citing the continued threat from Russia to Ukraine. Jagruti Dave reports from Washington. As well as families of American personnel, the State Department's travel advisory also told U.S. citizens in Ukraine that they should consider departing now using commercial or other privately available transportation options. The advisory said there are reports Russia is planning significant military action in Ukraine. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken warned on CNN that if a single additional Russian force enters Ukraine in an aggressive way, then that would trigger a swift, a severe and a united response from the U.S. and from Europe. Mr. Blinken's talks last week with his Russian counterpart in Geneva ended without a breakthrough. Western officials are holding talks with the Taliban in Norway. Three days of discussions are due to cover human rights, governance and the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. The UK government's launching an investigation into allegations of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Nusrat Ghani, a Muslim Conservative MP, claims she was told she was sacked as a junior minister in 2020 because of her faith. Downing Street denies those claims. Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi says an investigation run by the Cabinet Office will establish the facts. The Prime Minister spoke to Nusrat last night and has asked the Cabinet Office to look at this very serious allegation. I've been in the party since the 80s. I've grown up in this party. I've been a volunteer, an activist, member of Parliament and minister. I have not experienced anything like that. Japan is expanding COVID restrictions as nationwide cases top 50,000 for the first time. Half the country's population is already under fresh restrictions as the government tries to stem the spread of the Omicron variant. Phoebe Amoroso reports from Tokyo. As COVID cases continue to rocket to new highs, government discussions are underway to expand the restrictions. The decision will be formalized on Tuesday and is expected to bring as many as 32 of the nation's 47 prefectures under a so-called quasi-state of emergency. This allows prefectural governments to ask restaurants and bars to shorten their hours and even to stop serving alcohol, but the implementation is far from uniform across the country. The resurgence of the virus is having a knock-on effect on support for the government. According to a Kyodo News survey, approval for Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's cabinet stood at just under 56% on Sunday, down 4.1 points since last month. Kishida came into office in October, vowing to overcome the pandemic and revitalize Japan's economy. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN.
With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks, taking another look today at preparations for the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Athletes, their coaches and support staff continue to arrive in the Chinese capital, with the Games set to begin a week from Friday. And the Chinese authorities are going to extraordinary lengths to try and prevent COVID-19 not only from overshadowing the event, but also from spreading across China as a result of it. Patrick Fock is FSN's Beijing bureau chief. It's often referred to as uh, the bubble, but it's not really a single bubble as such. The closed loop is really a series of bubbles, including the Olympic Village, including hotels where athletes and other participants are going to be staying, as well as the competition venues. And they're all interconnected via designated shuttles across three competition zones. Remember, some of the competitions happening within Beijing itself, but there are also a lot of alpine competitions that are taking place in Yanqing and Zhengzhou, which are north of Beijing. And the idea, of course, is that athletes and coaches and officials and so on and so forth are going to be kept within this closed-loop system. And they're not actually going to have any contact with the rest of the country. A total of 11,000 people are due to travel to Beijing for the Games. They're COVID tested as soon as they land and then they enter that bubble where they will be tested every day for the duration of the Olympics. And we'll have full coverage of the run-up to the Games and then the Winter Olympics themselves from our team in China. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. To recap the top stories, the U.S. is ordering family members of diplomats in the U.S. Embassy in Kiev to leave Ukraine. Western officials are holding talks with the Taliban in Norway. The U.K. government's launching an investigation into claims of Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. And Japan is expanding COVID restrictions as nationwide daily cases top 50,000 for the first time. That's the latest feature story news. Oli Barrett reporting. Today's episode is sponsored by Google. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Monday, January 24th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're watching today. The U.S. orders diplomats' families out of Ukraine. Plus, 3D printing for cars. But first, today's one big thing. The rise of hyper-partisan politicians. If you think partisan politics is already a problem in this country, well, this year's midterms could see an even bigger slate of extreme candidates. In at least 19 House districts in 12 states across the U.S., hyper-partisan districts won't have incumbents, setting the stage for heavily partisan candidates. Axios political reporter Steph Kite has been mapping this out. Hey, Steph. Hey, Nyla. First, what do we mean when we say extreme candidates? You know, we're talking generally about candidates who fall on, you know, the furthest sides of either political party. Not that, you know, the most progressive Democrats are equal or the same as the farthest right Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobart, who have been pretty outspoken in the news lately. But what we are looking at is both extreme sides. We're looking at both very progressive candidates who would kind of fall outside of what more moderate traditional Democrats have typically been for. And we're also looking at extreme right, kind of the Trumpsters who have questioned election results and have been on that extreme side of things coming from the right. And so why are we seeing this veer to the edges of both parties rather than candidates who were in the middle? 
you know, there's a lot of different reasons for why we're seeing this extreme partisanship. And you can look at a lot of different things that have happened over the past few years. You look at the way we consume media in this country, the way that there are these media silos. You can look at um, this demographic change called the big sort, where people are increasingly living near like-minded individuals. But another thing that I wanted to look at with this story in particular is that there are specific things within the structure of our election and political systems that also don't help. For example, redistricting, where there's an incentive to redraw districts in a way that will favor one party over the other, and especially drawing districts that create safe districts for one party, making them extremely Republican or extremely Democrat. Steph, I bet there are people who are listening to this who are kind of despairing because they think our politics are already too partisan and extreme. What do political scientists think about this shift in the midterms and what this might mean for our society? Most of the people I spoke to definitely think we are on a path to continue becoming more partisan. Of course, there have been examples where the more moderate voices do win out. So even if there are advantages, it does depend on specific communities, how people turn out to vote, how people turn out to vote in their primaries and other factors that will determine whether or not we see a new wave of extreme candidates or not. Are there any conversations about making redistricting not at the hand of whatever political party is in power? Because we see this with both parties across all states, depending on which party is in power, they're redrawing the maps in their favor. Absolutely. We're seeing a rise in independent commissions who are in charge of drawing maps in certain states rather than partisan state legislatures. So we've seen quite a few states adopt this independent commission way of going about redistricting. And while it's still early on in the process, we have seen that some of the maps that have come out of these states with independent commissions be a little bit more competitive, meaning that Republicans and Democrats both have to kind of fight over the seats compared to a Republican or Democratic-controlled state where they're very clearly drawing lines to their own benefit. Steph Kite is a politics reporter at Axios. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Nyla. In 15 seconds, we're back with what's next for Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. Google keeps more people safe online than anyone else by blocking malware, phishing attempts, spam messages, and potential cyber attacks. Every day is safer with Google. Learn how Google helps keep everyone safe online at safety.google. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. The U.S. is rejecting calls to impose sanctions on Russia over Ukraine. Secretary of State Tony Blinken defended that decision yesterday on CNN's State of the Union. The purpose of those sanctions is to deter uh, Russian aggression. Uh, and so if they're, uh, if they're triggered now, you lose the deterrent effect. I asked Axios World Editor Dave Lawler to bring us up to speed on where negotiations stand now. Several developments over the last 48 hours or so have set the stage for a tense week when it comes to Ukraine. The U.S. State Department last night ordered the families of diplomats at the embassy in Kiev to evacuate. 
This comes as Russia sends additional troops to Belarus for military exercises that the U.S. fears could be cover for an invasion from the north. Meanwhile, more U.S.-supplied weapons are arriving in Ukraine. This is part of an effort on the U.S. side to show Vladimir Putin that if he goes ahead with an invasion, the Ukrainians will be well-armed, will be high cost in terms of casualties. It's all about deterrence there. There was this meeting on Friday between Secretary of State Tony Blinken and his Russian counterpart. The U.S. promised to provide answers in writing in the coming days to these Russian demands about things like no further eastward expansion of NATO. They're not going to agree there, but Blinken did hold up the possibility of a Biden-Putin summit in the coming weeks if there is some progress on the diplomatic side. And then there are these two headlines from Europe over the weekend that are worth keeping an eye on. One, the UK accused Russia of planning a potential coup in Ukraine to put in Kremlin-friendly politicians into power there. And the head of the German Navy resigned after he said, among other things, that Vladimir Putin really wants respect and perhaps we should give it to him. So that is a sign that there are some slightly different views among our European allies of how we should handle the threat and what the coming weeks might hold. Dave Lawler is Axios' world editor. We've been 3D printing things made out of plastic for a while now, and maybe you've heard us discuss 3D printing houses out of concrete. But now there's a new technology that's revolutionizing using metal in 3D printing. Does that mean we'll be 3D printing things like cars soon? Here to explain is Joanne Muller, who covers the future of transportation for Axios from Detroit. Joanne, what is 3D printing and what does it look like if you use metal? Well, 3D printing is the process of growing an object by just laying down one layer of material after another, and gradually something takes shape. Now, when we think of it, we usually think of this with plastics, but metal is something you can do as well. But instead of adding a layer of plastic, you're actually melting a thin layer of metal powder, and it welds to the layer below, and gradually those layers accumulate, and the object grows. The problem is it's super slow, and it's really hard to turn it into something like mass manufacturing of parts for cars or airplanes or consumer products. So are we not going to be seeing something like this anytime soon? Well, there's a company that is just coming out now that has a really interesting technology. They're basically taking a super-powered laser and splitting this one laser up into as many as 2.3 million beams of light. And what that does is it just makes it possible to print things much faster than we can today. And if we can go fast and still have quality, then we could actually see the day that this technology would be used in mass manufacturing to replace the kinds of methods we use today. And is the biggest incentive for that that it would be cheaper? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Manufacturers are looking for ways to reduce their costs, but in order to do so, they need to make sure they can go fast but also have quality. You can build anything nice and slowly, but if you want to build a million of them, you've got to be able to go fast and the quality has to be there, especially when you're building something like a car or an airplane. Joanne Muller is one of the co-authors of Exus's What's Next newsletter. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you, Nyla.
That's it for us today. You can reach our team by emailing podcasts at axios.com or you can message me directly on Twitter or you can always text me. The number is 202-918-4893. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. What Next is a daily podcast from Slate that helps you make sense of one news story in less than 30 minutes. When the world feels overwhelming, host Mary Harris is here to help you answer What Next. You can subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Google keeps more people safe online than anyone else by blocking malware, phishing attempts, spam messages, and potential cyber attacks. Every day is safer with Google. Learn how Google helps keep everyone safe online at safety.google. Billy Graham once said, Satan is masterful at using just enough of God's truth to capture a person's attention and then mix it with his devious potion that will lead astray. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church. We've been considering the lies Satan tells us that often sound so good. Have you ever heard the expression, God helps those who help themselves? Doesn't that sound pretty good? I've heard it quoted often, and many folks, including the majority of Christians, think that that is in the Bible, according to Barna Research. And it sounds good because we know that we are not to be passive, but actively doing good in our lives. If you're a Christian, you are now God's workmanship, created for good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. Ephesians 2.10 But here's the devil's potion. You are not helping your cause before God. God does not help those who help themselves. This is not in the Bible. It is, as Paul would call it, another gospel that is no gospel. The true gospel is to live in the grace of Christ alone. Galatians 1 verses 6 and 7. God helps those who help themselves is a scheme of the devil aimed at taking your eyes off Jesus. Setting your eyes rather on what you're doing in order to be rewarded by God. And this, my friend, will lead you down one of two paths. It will either lead you into pride as you set your eyes on your good works, things you should get recognition for. But the only way you can make much of your goodness is actually by shrinking God's law. You see, we're required to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength at all times. Let's be honest, you and I have not done that for a single minute of our lives. The other path is that of despair. If you're doing good works in order to get into God's good graces, how much goodness is enough to get in? When will you know you've been good enough for God? If you read scripture, you read, uh, God's standard is perfection, complete holiness, 1 Peter 1.15. The fact that not one of us is perfect is the reason God sent his perfect son, Jesus, to die for our sins. The gospel is all of grace, an undeserved gift given by God so that our salvation is all of his work. But the devil does not want you to rest in God's work, where God would get the glory. He wants you to think that you need to help your cause with your own efforts. But to be working for salvation is to always be working, Jared Wilson. That is exhausting. It's a yoke that you and I cannot bear, friend. God wants us to enter his rest. Jesus wants you to take his kind yoke upon you. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. So what do we do, Joel? Well, 
If we tend toward the pride path, well, we need to get over ourselves. We need to utterly despair of all that we can do to please God. Listen, there is a real sense that there is nothing you can do to please God. Let me repeat that so that it hurts. There is a real sense that there is nothing you can do to please God. Do you remember the parable of the servant who did all he was supposed to do in Luke 17.10? Jesus said afterwards, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The point that Jesus is making is that even if you were able to do everything God asked of you, all you would have done is the duty expected of you by your Creator God. He still owes you nothing. How can you profit God? God needs nothing. He is God. Recognize that and then repent of your righteousness. Now, if you tend the other way towards despair, well, my counsel to you is own it. Thomas Brooks said, the first step toward heaven is to see ourselves near hell. Does that make you feel uncomfortable and helpless? That, my friends, is a good thing. Listen to the good news of Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see that God does not help those who help themselves? God helps those who are helpless. So own your helplessness. Admit that you're a mess unable to get it right because all your mess does is qualify you for God's grace. That is the good news. It's not that we're pleasing to God and then get grace. It is that God is pleased to grace those who simply admit their weakness and their need. Yesterday I preached on one of my favorite promises of Jesus found in Luke 12:32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you may say, Joel, how can I know that the Heavenly Father smiles on me and wants me to have all of that? Romans 8:32, my friend. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My friend, what greater expression of favor could there be than for the Heavenly Father to give you the greatest gift he had? So take your eyes off yourself, that's the devil's trick, and fix them on the Son of God's love. My friend, remember who you are and who you belong to. If you had to condense all the rules and regulations and, and commandments in the Bible into three short rules to live your life by, what do you think those three rules would be? Maybe love God, love yourself, love your neighbor. The Bible has 66 books in it, and it's complicated to, to understand sometimes. And I think to, to take that, that big of a book and condense it down into three short rules is pretty tough for all of us. John Wesley is the, the founder of our Methodist denomination. We talked about him a little bit last week. Wesley lived in a, in a society that was rapidly changing. The economy was changing. The 
the social structure was changing and the and even the world of politics around him was changing. And in light of all this, the, the people of the church once asked him to summarize the Bible into three simple rules that would help them and the entire church stay grounded to God in times like we're going on in their lives, perhaps like times that are going on in our lives today. Wesley came up with this. He said simply, do no harm. Do good and stay in love with God. Three short, simple statements. And if we do this, then we would be following God's plan for our lives. And while it was good for the people back then, I think it's also a good plan for us to follow today. Do no harm, he said. To do no harm means what? Well, it means to, to, to not hurt anyone, not, not physically or emotionally. And while we don't go around trying to hurt others, we do that many, many times. Avoid harm, Wesley says. Avoid doing evil. Back in his day, he said that, well, to do all that, you should avoid things like drunkenness and fighting and brawling and slaveholding and buying and selling slaves. Avoid tax fraud, loan fraud, shady business deals, and avoid taking the Lord's name in vain. These were all things that Christians back then were to do, and, and many of those uh, filter into our lives today as well. But there's another method of doing harm that I, I don't believe a lot of us realize that we're doing. In fact, Wesley says, do no harm by avoiding evil of every kind, especially that which is most generally practiced. There's a form of evil that is generally practiced in our society today that we've come to, to really not pay too much attention to anymore. But it does tremendous harm both to, to us and to other people. For many of us, including myself, I'm not perfect by any means, the way that we hurt others more than any other way is with our words, what we say to other people, the way we talk to other people, the way we talk about each other, the negativity, the gossip, the sarcasm, the, the insults, the put-downs, the, the backstabbings, and, and even the things that we put on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the others that are out there. I mean, really, it's easy to post a comment on Facebook or Messenger without putting too much thought even into it, which means it only takes just a few seconds to send a message that has a sarcastic remark in it or a message that maybe makes fun of someone. Like Wesley said, it's very easy to hurt people with words. Words can reduce a person's self-esteem to next to nothing in just a, a snap of a finger. Text messages that tell 
you that no one cares about you or that no one likes you because of how you look, because you're, you're too fat or you're too skinny or you're, you're, too, you're too ugly. These things can tear your heart out. Maybe the words were meant to be a joke and maybe the person sending them was, was with a bunch of friends and they, they were pressured to do it, but it doesn't really make a bit of difference because words hurt. We're talking about harsh, judgmental words that you and I can actually let slip out of our mouths without even thinking. Words that can hurt and harm, words that can make someone feel insecure and excluded, words that can at some point in time, if they build up and build up and build up, can eventually kill. This is the one of the great dangers of our, our social media society, I think, that people can feel distant enough from the person that they're writing to that it can, it can allow them to lower their, their moral and ethical standards and, and say things that they wouldn't normally say to someone face to face. You see, all it takes is just a, a few keystrokes, a few keystrokes, and you hit send, and you've possibly changed someone's lives forever. Because you see, after you send it, those words don't disappear. They continue to exist from the moment that you send them. And these harmful, hurtful words are going to continue to exist in the thoughts and the minds of whoever you sent it to. So I wonder this morning, as, as I stand here and look out at you and you look back at me, have you ever been in a situation where, where you wish you could take back your words? Maybe you're in that situation today. Maybe you said something recently that you wish you hadn't said. We say things and we hurt other people's feelings. We, we, we say things that people misinterpret. We say things that people take the wrong way. And we hurt their feelings. And as soon as the words come out of our mouths or as soon as we send them out on social media, we wish we hadn't done it. If we could just take them back. But we not only type stupid things and we not only say stupid things, but, but we do some awful stupid things too, don't you think? We sometimes do things that people don't understand and we hurt their feelings. Sometimes we find ourselves in the position of knowing we should do something, but out of fear or pride or, or just plain laziness or stupidity, we don't do anything and we end up having someone's feelings hurt or someone getting upset with us. Sometimes people get upset with us because we don't believe the same thing that they believe, spiritually, morally, or in today's world, politically. Family members and longtime friends get upset with one another because they aren't on the same page together. If we could just stop for a second or two and before we say anything or before we type anything or did anything and ask ourselves if what we were about to do, if it would hurt us, if we were in the other person's shoes. 
Don't you think it would make a big difference in how we treat others and how we live our lives if we would take into consideration how someone else feels? You know, this is the first of the year, so maybe it's a, it's a good time to change. Maybe today would be a good day to, to take a look at yourself, take a, take a few minutes and think about the things you did this past week and the things you said and the things that you did. Think about maybe of the feelings you hurt. Do no harm, he says. It, it sounds easy, it sounds good, but it's not. It's not because, well, because we're human beings and as human beings, we're known for our mistakes. But if the world is ever going to become a place where we can love each other and, and get along with each other, if the world is ever going to be a place of, of peace, then we at least need to, to at least attempt to live our lives the way God wants us to live them. Attempt it. And the first thing we can do in doing that is to try to not harm other people. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the, the lady who wrote the poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. Perhaps we could write a poem ourselves, How Do I Harm Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. We could begin with war, not just the Civil War and World War I and World War II and Korea and Vietnam and, and Afghanistan and Iraq, but the world's wars that continue on and on and on, wars that have been going on, wars that are going on today. There's internal fighting in our, in our own country and people die every day because of race and religion and, and nationality. People are, are robbed every day. People are stabbed every day. People are shot every day. Strangers hurt strangers. Friends hurt and kill friends. Families hurt and kill families. And then there are the words that we say on top of that. You say words that, words that hurt, words that cut deeply into our, our very being, words that can, can eventually overwhelm us, words that can eventually overtake us, words that can eventually drive us into the ground and kill us. John Wesley gave us a simple rule to follow. But I also think that deep within that one simple rule are three other rules that we need to follow if we're going to learn how to do no harm. First, we have to learn to believe like Jesus believed. He had a strong faith, so, so strong that, that we'd have to call it a radical faith because he completely trusted in God. He always did what God wanted him to do. Did you ever notice that? He always did what God wanted him to do and never asked questions. Radical discipleship. Radical discipleship, doing what he wants you to do, and that's all based on love. Love for ourselves, love for one another. Follow him and trust him and, and turn to him 100% of the time. You remember the saying, do as I do and what, not as I say? You think Jesus would put it that way? No. 
Jesus says this, do as I say and do as I do. So with that in mind, maybe we'd be better off to go back to the craze that we did back in the, what, the 60s and the 70s or whatever, the, the what would Jesus do type of thing. How much better off would we be, I wonder, if we were to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do to keep from harming someone else if he found himself in the same position that I'm in? I don't know. Secondly, we have to do this. We have to learn to live like Jesus lived. Simply because the way we live has a tendency to hurt other people. I mean, the way we live says a lot about us. The way we act says a lot about us. We can, we can draw people to us or we can, we can repel people away from us. Just by the way we act. Just as our, our good actions affect others, so too do our bad and negative actions hurt and harm other people. So if you think you can be rude or you think you can be snotty, I guess is a good word, to, to this person or that person and no one else is going to notice or no one's going to see, it doesn't work that way because people can see the way you act toward others. People can see right through you, the old saying goes, and that's just by the way you treat people. So we have to learn to, to act the same way Jesus would act in any given situation in our lives. And finally, we have to learn how to speak like Jesus spoke. Honest, straightforward. He never beat around the bush. He always knew exactly where he stood. So we can use our voices for two purposes. We can use our voices to, to hurt people, to tear them down, to tear them apart, and make them feel bad about themselves. Or we can use our voices to, to build people up, to strengthen people and, and inspire them. Jesus used his voice to, to build people up. Think about this. Even as he was dying on the cross, he continued to forgive people. He continued to love people and, and even save people as he hung there. To follow him is tough. To follow Jesus is, is, is hard, it's scary, and it's almost impossible. But if we do what Paul tells us to do in the fifth chapter of Galatians, what if we try to quit doing things on our own and let the Holy Spirit guide us. You see, there are two forces within us that are fighting each other. The, the sinful nature, nature that wants us to do bad things, to, to hurt other people. And then there's the Holy Spirit that wants us to do just the opposite of hurting people, which is loving people. The Spirit wants us to build people up, to strengthen people, and to inspire them. And if we rely only on our own wisdom, you see, it's never going to work. And if we try to follow the Holy Spirit by our, by our own self-human efforts, we're going to fail. 
The only way to spiritual freedom, Paul says, is by radical discipleship, by making a decision to follow Jesus and then allow the Spirit to guide you on your everyday decisions. And if we do that, the Spirit, you see, becomes this, this source of numerous virtues throughout our entire bodies, virtues like peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All these things that Jesus wants us to be, all these things that come to us through Jesus, things that provide a, a daily cleansing in our lives, things that provide a constant renewal throughout our souls each and every day. You see, we can come up with all sorts of reasons of why it's difficult to live by Wesley's first rule, to, to do no harm. But, but the good news is we don't have to try to do it on our own. Because we always have someone who's ready to stand beside us, to prop us up, to, to hold us up, to support us. And through this, we can do all things through him who strengthens me. The power we receive through the Holy Spirit is not only sufficient enough to do God's will, but it will also cleanse us and strengthen us to face that come along in our lives each and every day. But it will also be able to strengthen us as we follow the commitment that we make to him each and every day. To do no harm is a proactive response against everything that's evil. But to adopt this first simple rule, do no harm, is to allow the Spirit of God to guide us. And this in itself is a giant step in transforming the world in which we live. Amen.